Good morning. We're going to be in Genesis 3, 21 to 24 this morning. While it will be on the screen, I encourage you also to read along in your Bible. We do have Bibles back in the pews in front of you again. Um, we're glad for that. You're welcome to use those as well. If the translation is a little bit different than what's on the screen, that's okay. I promise you that the message will be the same. While you turn there, I do want to apologize for being a little frazzled this morning. Of course, I had plenty of notice that Ben would be gone today, but as was true last time, he is very missed when he's not here. Uh, he does a lot on Sunday mornings, and I'm reminded of how thankful I am for him when he's gone. If you are missing Ben a little bit, there is a little representation of Ben up here, so he's not too far from any of us. You can come and see that after service if you would like. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Finding joy in the creating, he continued. He made light and darkness, the sky and the seas, the land and the plants. The stars, which I believe we're supposed to read as our elder siblings in the creation story, the spiritual beings. Then he filled the water with fish and the sky with birds and the land with animals. And then, as the cherry on top of this wonderful creation, he created humanity. He created you and I. As you know, the Bible tells us that he did all of this in six days and that it was very good. Then he made a garden and he put us in it and he told us that we were welcome to partake of any fruit of this beautiful garden, including the tree of life. More than we could ever imagine was available to us. Beautiful fruits, trees, and plants of all kinds, and a world that was not yet in conflict with itself. It was amazing. But there was one rule. We were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when we ate of it, we would surely die. And then the serpent entered the garden. The evil one, the devil, resenting us, I believe, because of the grand plans God had for us from the beginning. To one day rise up, even above the spiritual beings, our elders in creation. And so he tricked them into eating the fruit from the wrong tree. Instead of the fruit of the tree of life, they ate of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one know that God had given them. And this violated the relationship between God and his creations. Rather than being able to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day, now sin had invaded, and they allowed it to steal them from the God who made them and loved them. And so God pronounced curses on the serpent and on the ground from which Adam had been made, and he explained the consequences to Adam and Eve, pain in childbearing for Eve, and painful toil and hard work for Adam. And now here picks up our story in our passage this morning, Genesis 3, 21 to 24. The Lord God had made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Perhaps only afterwards did Adam and Eve realize that the two trees were a test, an opportunity to grow and to learn. On one hand, they had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they had been told to stay away from. And on the other hand, they had the tree of life. The proportions are a little off because I had to widen it to the screen, but hopefully you recognize that beautiful tree is, in my opinion, the most beautiful tree in Washington, and I love this time of year. When I think of the tree of life, it is an image that comes to mind for me. Now, both of these trees were in the middle of the garden. In order to eat from the tree of life, they had to pass by the forbidden tree. Now, you might wonder, why would a good God set up a system like this one? Why would he literally put temptation to break the only rule so prominently in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the Bible says that they were both there in the middle of the garden, so literally, the choice between life and death were right next to one another. You've heard me say before that I don't think we're supposed to believe that it's the fruit itself that matters the most here. I don't imagine that we're supposed to believe that some system existed whereby if they had accidentally imbibed the wrong fruit, one of uh, the pieces of fruit had fallen from the tree and rolled into a place that made them believe it was something else, that eating it would have caused the fall. Or if the spiritual being who is disguising himself as the serpent or taking on the image of a serpent were to, to bring the fruit to her and lie about where it was from, I don't think the fall would have happened. This wasn't about something this wasn't something they could be fooled into. It was a choice that they had to make. The fruit of one tree was not filled with spiritual life while the fruit of the other was filled with spiritual death. Instead, the two trees offered a choice, a continual test. Eat not from the fruit which looks good but leads to death, but rather choose to eat from the tree of life. Now here, many thousands of years later, I, I know myself well enough that I would not pass this test nearly as long as I wish I would. Lisa and I discovered something about me from very early on in our marriage. I don't remember the exact circumstances. I am just so certain that she does because her memory on these things is much better than mine. But there was something presented to me that seemed pleasing to my eye but was not a good idea. And upon seeing my interest, Lisa looked at me and said, no. Words cannot express what rises up in me when someone just openly tells me no. This overwhelming desire to have the thing I've been forbidden manifests itself and nearly takes over. In fact, we realized in that moment that the very best way Lisa could guarantee that I would in fact do whatever it was that she knew to be bad for me was to look at me and just say, no, guarantee I'm going to do it. Now, I don't blame Lisa for not knowing about this. 
being much, much more righteous than I. Lisa has no trouble with being told no when it's appropriate. But I, however, feel the need to rail against it. Now, this is not a good part of me. This is not a part of me I'm glad for. And fortunately, I'm blessed with a very gracious and wise wife who has learned in those moments instead to just ask me the question, is that wise? Because then I have to answer in my own head, no. And I deflate and saddened. I turn away from whatever thing my eye has found that I know to be not good for me. That instinct. The need to do the thing that we've been forbidden, it lies deep in the human heart. You can see it clearly at work if you were to put a do not touch sign on the wall. While many people are like Lisa, they're obedient rule followers who would not feel the need to break the rule, I think that many of you are like me. It would only be a matter of time before you needed to do the thing, the sign, was compelling you not to do. Is that paint really still wet? Why on earth would I need to know? I don't need to know. I ask myself that question so I can excuse doing the one thing the sign tells me not to do. In fact, study after study has shown that you are much more likely to touch the wall with wet paint if they put a sign on it that says don't. Otherwise, we don't often go around touching walls, but as soon as there's a rule that says no, many of us just need to do it. You see, the serpent would not have needed to tempt me. It would have just needed to wait. But Adam and Eve, they were not fallen. They did not have this deep-seated desire to rebel in their hearts, and so he needed to tempt them. Had the serpent never come, I imagine that Adam and Eve would have spent an eternity practicing obedience and growing in goodness and wisdom through it and through their close relationship to God. But instead they were tempted, and they failed the test, and the kingdom was stolen as sin invaded and brought a wedge between them and the holy God who created and loved them. And so, since the spiritual death of sin had entered into them, they could not be allowed to continue eating from the tree of life. You see, the tree of life is the fruit of a right and direct relationship with God. It's like coming into His very presence and taking some of that into you. And now Adam and Eve had been made unclean, their relationship with God broken. It would be a disaster for them to live that way forever. And so God banished them from the garden and put a cherubim outside to guard it. And the whole rest of the Bible is the story of God undoing this work of the evil one, beginning a new kingdom to overcome the stolen one, and making a way for humanity to be healed from the death, the sinful nature that we are born with. All the while, the evil one and the other spiritual beings who followed him are working to ruin God's plan, to murder his favored creations, and to rule over their stolen kingdom. God's original plan was for us to never taste death. But now God had to make a way through death 
to conquer it and the evil one so that we can be healed and given eternal life once again. I said that that story goes all the way through the Bible and is retold over and over. And to give you one example of that, you can see it clearly in the tabernacle and the temple where the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. It was believed that in that room, the Holy of Holies in the center of the tabernacle or the temple, that God really dwelled in there. They were cut off by a thick curtain. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence and was guarded by cherubim, both on the Ark itself and also, you can see, on the curtain which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Like the cherubim who guarded the Tree of Life, these cherubim guarded the place of God's presence where human beings were no longer allowed to go. The curtain, this thick curtain, created a barrier between human beings and God's dwelling place, a barrier that was torn in half on the day that the tree of life was finally given back to human beings. Have you ever noticed how often the cross is called a tree over and over again in the New Testament? One passage which Particularly stands out to me. It's it's it happens in Acts. It's all over the place in many of the sermons. Peter, especially, but Paul too. They refer to the cross as a tree. You can see it in the old NIV, the one in our pews. If you have a new one, it's the the changed tree, the cross, so you don't get confused. But I think that Peter and Paul said tree on purpose because I think we were supposed to think. Of something. In 1 Peter 19 to 25, he says this For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. He should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the cross, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the tree of life, this direct access is made available to us again. We go directly to God and benefit from his direct presence. There's no barrier anymore. There's no curtain anymore. It splits in two. We can go into the Holy of Holies. We can stand before the throne. It is through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that we're able to receive 
the gift of God's own spirit, to freely partake in the presence of God and the life that he gives. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we repent of our sins and commit our lives to the Lord, we are declaring that we're defecting from the stolen kingdom and we are born again into and following Jesus into the kingdom of life. What's interesting about this story of the tree of life in the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, and the life given from God, it's still the choice it's before us today. We live this story out over and over again every single day of our lives. Temptation is present. And often we don't have any questions about what the right thing to do is. Of course there's those moments where you wonder what the right thing to do is. Those are, those are a different thing. I'm talking about those moments when something that's pleasing to the eye catches you. And you know, God said, no. And why in the world would that ever not be the easiest decision in the world? When we look at it objectively, why would we ever struggle? We know that God wants the best for us. We know that God loves us, that he provides for us, that he will give us all the greatest things we could ever hope for if only we choose from the fruit he calls us to, the good thing he wants us to do, the path that follows Jesus, not this other one that has caught our eye. And yet, we don't need someone to come along and confuse us. We find within ourselves this pull to take fruit from the wrong tree. Now we are not in the same place or position as those who came after Adam and Eve were because we who believe in Jesus and have committed to him have his spirit within us and his spirit encourages, pushes, strengthens, sometimes pulls and drags us toward the fruit that God has called us to. But always we have a choice. God will not make the choice for you. Because you see, there's something very important and very valuable in choosing again and again and again what God has given to us or he has called us to. It's in that process of saying no to what we ought not have and yes to what God has called us to that we grow, we're strengthened, by that. And so we find ourselves hundreds of times a day in a position where we could absolutely choose the fruit he doesn't want us to. And yet, by the power of the Spirit, we are able to say yes to what God has told us to. Whether it's when that person cuts you off in traffic and the word that is about to come out of your mouth is not one that you want the other people in the car to hear you say. And in a moment, there's a choice. Maybe you think there isn't, but there is. But it just feels so good to say the wrong thing. 
right? We have this promise, this lie within us that says, this is what I ought to do. And then perhaps afterwards we realize that was a mistake. But in that moment, we have a choice. Where is it that you confront the two trees most often? Is it your temper? Is it while you're driving? Is it while you're choosing what to spend your money on? Is it while choosing whether or not to be honest with your loved ones? Is it in choosing what to look at or not look at? Is it in laying in bed and thinking, well, this is the time I have set aside to spend with the Lord, but man, this game on my phone is a lot of fun. Where are the two trees for you? Now, when we make a mistake, when we choose from the wrong fruit, our, the love God has for us, it's not lessened. He never turns away. He's not on a swivel chair expecting us to do right all the time or he'll turn away in anger. That's not the way he works. But again and again and again, we're put in a place where we get to choose fruit from the forbidden tree or fruit from the tree of life. And not only is that split still within us, it pulls us, but the serpent is also still here and active, still working to ruin God's treasured creations, God's good work, still hoping to murder those God loves. What does he do? Well, I think it's, we're at a time where we can perhaps see his work a little more clearly than other times. During this time of pandemic, in distance, in stress, in fear, we find ourselves over and over again Struggling as good things, good and holy things are not available to us in the way they once were, and we find ourselves struggling. I did something a little uncomfortable this week. I thought to myself, if I were the devil, what would I do? One thing we know about him is he loves to sow division. See, God calls us to unity, to the redemption and reconciliation of relationships, and the evil one desires to drive wedges. And so if I were the devil, I think that I would take this time where some of us have an opportunity for sweet time together that we've not had in a long time. People home with each other more than before, and I think I'd want to make that as stressful as possible. If I were the devil, I'd want to take this time when people are stressed and pressured and make husbands and wives who love one another dearly begin to turn on each other. If I were the devil, I think I would come into families and try to just make everyone as irritable as possible. And people may not even realize why they're so aggravated in ways that they haven't been before, but they're just touchy. If I were the devil, I think I would want arguments and fights 
to happen more than ever before because instead of sweet time together, now you're stuck at home together. And when things are not going well, that hurts more and more and more. If I were the devil, I think I would want to come in between friendships and family and turn brother against brother to say, Do you, can you believe who they're voting for? And just plant that thought in your head again and again, while at the same time speak a lie to you that the, the goodness of God's kingdom or the work that he's doing depends on who's in the Oval Office or who gets elected in November. When we know, we know that there is one king on the throne and it is not the president of the United States, but it feels so much like it is. And so we write off relationships because we have division spoken over and over again into our heart. And we think that a difference of opinion has become more important than relationships. Good, healthy, holy relationships. Or I would do the exact same thing over the different ways that people see the pandemic and the virus. Oh, I'm sorry. You think we need to wear masks. I don't want to associate with you. Because you see, that feels like fear. And I don't want to be around people who are afraid. Or, I'm sorry, you're not wearing a mask. That's a little bit of an inconvenience to show compassion and love for those around you. And we begin to think in those ways, seeing those people that we love that we know well, that we're in community with as opponents who are following the wrong path. And we're called to just argue or separate. If I was the evil one, I would delight in that frustration that you feel when someone thinks differently than you do on a subject that in the eternal, in an eternal perspective does not way. If I was the evil one, I would want churches to be struggling right now. I would want the opportunity of the pandemic to just speak to those who struggle with their commitment to stay connected and to be this perfect, ready-made excuse. Well, I'll still go to church, but I'll do it from the live stream. It's not that, that I'm in particular danger or I'm uncomfortable coming to church at all, but there's the, there's the ability to sleep in. And isn't that extra hour of sleep just so nice on Sunday mornings? Of course we know. We know that an hour of sleep does not compare to the goodness of fellowshipping together, but in the moment, we're pulled. But then it goes somewhere else. It's not just, I'm going to stay home and watch the live stream, which would be fine, but it doesn't stop there. But you know what? No one's going to know if I just, I don't make it this week. And an occasional week turns into a regular practice. And we find ourselves drifting further and further away. And then we say, why does God seem so far away lately? I haven't, I haven't been to church. I haven't been reading my Bible. I haven't been spending time in prayer because no one really knows whether I'm doing it or not. But, but God, why are you so far away? If I was the devil, that's exactly what I would want to happen. 
Because then somehow we make this about what God isn't doing instead of what we've allowed to happen within our own hearts. I'm not saying any of this. If you hear yourself in any of this, none of this is to shame you. None of it is to shame you. I want us to be able to see clearly that we're still in the garden. We're pulled to one fruit or the other, but there's still a serpent trying to ruin God's work. He's real. And he does not want you going to the fruit of the tree of life. He does not want you strengthening your relationships. He does not want you taking the extra time that you might have and using that in a way that draws you closer to the Lord. He wants the opposite. I'm not saying that you need to feel shame if you hear yourself in this. What I am saying is I want you to see it. And if you find yourself in the midst of something that the devil clearly wants, then it's time to run to Jesus, to go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I'm not strong enough to choose the fruit you want me to. By the power of your spirit, strengthen me. Change the desires of my heart. Help me to see the spiritual warfare that I'm caught up in the midst of that I don't even recognize as spiritual warfare. You see, it's easy to recognize spiritual warfare when it's big. When a big thing is happening to you, it's in the small, day-to-day, moment-to-moment times that we miss it. But he's there. Fortunately, while the evil one works, while he desires to ruin God's good things, he is not nearly strong enough to take us away from the God who loves us. He cannot pull you from God's hand. He cannot change your relationship with the Lord. He cannot ever, ever take you away from the God who created, loves, sustains, and has saved you. He's not capable of it. And it's when we recognize in those moments that the snake is rendered powerless in any way other than the power we give to him when we realize that we have one within us so much stronger than the snake is. It's in those moments that our eyes are opened and we see clearly that we find it easiest to cling to the Lord. That's my hope for you today. That you would see clearly James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Do not allow the pandemic to be a time of division. I've spoken with a couple of people are making big decisions during this time when life is just so crazy. And sometimes you have to. There's no avoiding it. 
Well, my goodness, if there's ever not a time to make big decisions that affect where you go to fellowship with the Lord, what practices you have to spend time with Him, if there's ever not a time to make life-altering decisions, it's in a time when the world is the way it is now. Don't allow the pandemic to be a time of division. And so my call and encouragement to you is to recognize that you're standing in the garden. To ask and be honest with yourself, what is the fruit that pulls you away from him? What is the forbidden fruit for you? Don't allow the evil one to tempt you or push you or lie to you or coerce you towards the thing that God has told you no. But recognize each and every time that it's when we choose what God has called us to, we draw closer to him. We're strengthened in and by him. And in those moments, dozens and hundreds of times every day, from everything from, am I going to spend money on this, to what am I going to eat, to how fast am I going to drive, to how am I going to react when things don't go my way, to this person just said something a little bit irritable to me, how am I going to respond, to I feel anger rising up in myself, what am I going to do? Every moment of the day, we're presented with opportunities to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want what you have for me, Lord. I want to be like you, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Save and change me. My hope is that we can take this time, this crazy time, and draw nearer to the Lord than ever before. To take the fruit in the tree of life more richly than ever before. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for your goodness and your love, for the grace and mercy that you extend to us. We're thankful for who we are in you. Thankful for your spirit. Lord, we know that we are in a difficult time. So many of us are struggling. In one area of life or another, so many of us are struggling. Lord, help us to recognize that we need you. We need you more than we need our next breath, more than we need the next beat of our heart. Lord, we need you. 
Lord, give us wisdom and discernment to see when spiritual warfare is waging around us, to see clearly the choice between two fruits. Lord, help us to not be tricked into shame. If we ought to stay home, give us the strength, the wisdom, the discernment to stay home. Even when we're fatigued, even when it's hard. But Lord, if we are called to serve, to be involved, if that's what you desire for us, give us the wisdom and discernment to see that too. Help us to draw nearer to you than ever before. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.